This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. Boy, it's hot outside. I think I've lost track of uh, how hot, uh, but it's really, I think it's putting me in the mood for some rosé, and uh, we've had, we've been featuring rosé on the past few episodes here on Another Bottle Down, and um, if you're just, uh, if you're not familiar with us, my name is Mark Rayshap, and we talk about wine every week for one hour. Really, really happy to be here on the co-op airwaves. And, uh, and to really, really bring attention to folks who are doing an amazing thing in the industry. So we're going to, uh, our first segment's going to be with Ray Wilson, who is owner of Dandy Rosé. She is making wine in the Hill Country, and she also consults for a number of restaurants and really cool wine spots around town. So really looking forward to getting to know her. So um, stay tuned. We'll, we're going to hear some more music and be right back. All right. Ray Wilson, thank you so much for coming into the studio. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So um, so, so tell us, you know, I, I, I invited you here because you've just got so much going on. You, uh, you've, for the past couple of years, launched your own label of, uh, of rosé called Dandy Rosé, right? I did, yes. Tell us a little bit just in general about that project. Um, it came about from, I guess, well, some, a lot, a lot of time in the wine industry and then coming back to Texas and being really curious about what was happening in the industry here. Um, up until, uh, 2011, really, I didn't, I really wasn't very familiar at all with, uh, there being much of a Texas industry. And then I got curious and that then turned into working, uh, with, uh, a couple really cool producers and kind of then stud- starting my own study with the Texas industry. And that somehow kind of, yeah, turned into my own curiosity of styles and opinions that I had around things that would work well in the Hill Country area specifically, since that's most accessible to me living in Austin. Right. And uh, and Rosé became kind of the a big thing that I was intrigued by to uh, it create. It was kind of the revelation, right? For certain, yes. yeah. So, so uh, can you can you kind of lead us through that that process that you went through once you started to take an in, you know step almost step by step or you know just what was going through your head in that you know you were getting into the Texas industry knowing a lot about wine and coming from a wine background and then how did yeah. that you know what was the genesis of that and were you traveling and visiting a lot of vineyards were you meeting people how did it go down. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess to give you a bit of a background, I would have to put it back at, um, I kind of got into the industry a little indirectly, but I uh, am from St. Louis and there worked for a microbrewery and got interested and started learning brewing. Um, Okay. So that was, uh, I guess, about... 18 years ago or so. Oh, wow. And then through that time, I kind of, I had a lot of, 
um, people around me that were in the food and wine industry, so sommelier friends and food writers. And then it just kind of opened up this world that I started really wanting to explore. Cool. And then that turned into working in a lot of restaurants. Um, and then the more higher end ones, I needed more wine knowledge. And so it just kind of morphed into this getting really interested in uh, some deeper study with wine. Right. And so that turned into uh, doing some certifications. I started in 2007 with uh, the WSET or the Wine and Spirits Education Trust right. and did the uh, advanced level then. And then um, a few years later, ended up looking at the Court of Masters as well uh, to do a certified sommelier certification. Um, but that all kind of then for me, I'm, I think I'm a systematic thinker and right. I really like um, putting an entire picture together and completing that circle in my mind. And so the more I got into the study of it, I really wanted to put my hands on it and see it and smell it and get a more visceral kind of fuller experience. And right. so I started seeking out um, a cellar to work in first. Okay. And so I went to California and uh, did a harvest internship, which then turned into a full cellar position. So I stayed there for about a year working in Carneros um, at Artessa Winery. Very cool. And then came back here for a couple months and turned around and went to Portugal and did two vintages there. Wow. Um, in the south and the north, and then were, were you living in Austin at the time? I mean, you you made the move. Um, yeah, yeah, and and so then this travel was happening throughout yeah. that time. Yeah, I came here in two thousand five, and then this kind of started right. I think at that time, I really started focusing mostly on the the wine study on a right. different level than I had previously. Okay, very cool. Did you did you find at that time Austin was a good place to be doing that how what was the vibe or uh, you know you're smiling so yeah. it, maybe it was a little bit um it was just so new right yeah there you know it's it's boomed as anyone here would be able to tell you it, right. it's been you know in this intense boom for quite some time and certainly what it is now compared to that 10 and a half years ago uh that i got here in late 2005 it's quite a different uh city when it comes to food and wine right and so at that time um it was um, there were sommelier positions out there, but they were right. fewer and certainly much far, uh, farther between than what they are now. Right, right. And, um, and then, uh, after having come back from Europe, I really then started looking at kind of wanting to do kind of involve myself in bridging some of these gaps in the industry. And that's where I found that the booming food and wine scene was becoming a much more welcoming place to kind of create something like that. Right. And yet, um, not that many years before, it would have been nearly impossible right. to do. Wow. I mean, we have so many, so much to talk about. Um, but but I wanted I want to just glance on uh, your kind of history as a brewer too, and what that brought to, um, you know, your, your internships in the winery. I know that uh, there's a lot of folks out there who listen, uh, and who are maybe interested, more interested in beer. And, uh, you know, there, there there's an inkling of, uh, interest to what the wine world can open up. Do you feel like you kind of tackled the internships with a different eye, having the experience uh, in the brewery, because um, they're very similar as far as, you know, some production techniques and fermentation and all that. Yeah, I mean, certainly on the, on some levels, at least some of the equipment was, was um, familiar, right. not all of it, because it becomes really apparent very quickly how different it is when you have a uh, 
winery that you know deals with once a year is all of your production all at once (laughs) and it might be you know spread more out depending on the season or it might be just everything comes into the cellar at once and you're working you know 24 hour kind of uh people are put on 24 hour uh uh, kind of alternating shifts. Right, um, right. Whereas in the brewery, uh, certainly you can, you know, with the materials and supplies on hand, you can start a, a new batch at any time. So right, right. that is considerably different. But a lot of the equipment was uh, was yeah. uh, was familiar. Yeah, yeah. Did uh, was that kind of interesting to you? So uh, I as well worked in in college in microbreweries, and then moving into the wine side of things, I was always intrigued how. Um, there's so much riding on the harvest of the of, of the wine harvest because you only get one, uh, yeah. and, and you can't uh, you, you know you can't uh, throw away a batch really or else you've lost yes. all of your work. That I mean, there's just so much riding on it. Yeah. Did, did that intrigue you? Does is that like a challenge that that you know you kind of had to have to have? Uh, it is intriguing, and I think what it, you know, for me, I think breaks down to is that it makes a much more slowly moving industry right. because any improvements or things you want to change, you're left with either the clone that you planted or the rootstock that you then right. grafted it to or the nursery that you, you know, supplied you with your plant material or then the farming methods or the trelling, trellising or the, the amount of variables that go into then farming your own fruit and then any given on top of that growing season weather, um, be that, you know, good or bad or anything in between, um, those variables alone are so endless that then once you actually get it into the cellar to start, uh, fermentation, that's already such a feat (laughs) that I think that that became, it's, it's also, it's so slow to change any of those things because they're so much larger and just to get vines, you know, to the maturity level that then you can make wine from is its own uh, waiting time. So it's nothing happens overnight. Uh, Great wine is certainly not made overnight. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So, you know, I really hope to highlight all of those, those steps in between on this show and uh, for folks to really appreciate, you know, they might be sitting in front of a glass and, and it's like, you know, get drawn into that history and, and, Mm -hmm. and the geography and the place and, it's uh, it's so much more than just uh, a liquid. Okay, so with Dandy Rosé, um, you you decided you had this background in wine. Uh, then you started doing your harvests. So so those internships was were was specifically gearing you up to making your own wine, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then so so tell us about the decision to to pull the trigger. What you know? <laughs> what was the first step? Because uh, you've planted your own vineyard, mm-hmm. um, but you started off by buying uh, fruit, not bulk wine. You started mm-hmm. off by buying fruit. So, yes. so tell us, you know, what that decision was like to, to be like, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to make my own wine now. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily that comes with a good amount of support because again, with wine, it's not something that easily just as an individual, you can just set out and do as right. an individual. It right. kind of takes yeah. more of a community with wine. Right. So um, some of the uh, winemakers in Texas, uh, specifically in the Hill Country, um, I'd become uh, good friends with and kind of became more familiar with their productions. Um, and then the reason that I ended up in Austin was a very longtime friend of mine, and she has a property in the Hill Country. Um, and it came into conversation where we were then talking about planting a couple acres there. And right. so um, 
that turned into many, many phone calls to viticulturists right. and winemaker friends and talking about, you know, is this, how viable is this? And so how you had the, space? you had the property and it's yes. like, well, why don't we plant a vineyard here? Is mm-hmm. it going to work? So did you, exactly. you had, did you have some people come out and be like, well, is this the right soil? Or did yes. you have a feeling for that? Did you put a lot of research into it, right? Um, I mean, I did put some research into it, but I also very much would defer to anyone who had had experience here because I really, from the different parts of the industry that I have involved myself in, the viticultural part was the weakest uh, part of knowledge right, for me. And I was right. definitely going to um, look to anyone here that had uh, more experience in that. And so uh, Jim Kamas, who um, worked with the, uh, the Texas Ag Extension Program, he came out and checked our soils and looked at kind of positioning and um, and gave us some opinions. I talked to uh, Bill Blackman of William Chris and then Doug Lewis of Lewis Wines and all these, you know, really great community of people with all kinds of experience um, that was so much more And they were um, really willing willing to help yeah, and, and, and lend much. a hand. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so cool that uh, from what I see as well in talking to producers, it's just like, you know, the better that they can make the Texas industry as a whole, the better it will be for each one of them. And there's not that piece of competition that sometimes yeah. you can feel in, in California where it's like, come to my tasting room, not the ne- the neighbors or something like that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a really, on many, many levels, a very generous community of people that really do uh, combine resources and help each other out. And, yeah. and that's really very necessary when it comes to it becomes clearer and clearer with the farming side. So right, right. there's that. And so I think with, you know, talking to them and then looking at this uh, piece of property, we put uh, two acres under vine. We planted it to Grenache, um, Mervedra, and Senso, which when I was looking at the hill country area, um, and that is still a huge, vast uh, part of land, but right, even in yeah. the area near Johnson City where we've planted, um, I was really intrigued specifically with rosé as a uh, style that I thought could work well in an intensely um, warm climate, but also with the types of soils, with lots of limestone right. and um, sand. And it is, again, through the entire hill country, there's a lot of variation. But right. in the soils on this site, we were looking at limestone and sand and some clay, Um all of which you can find um, similarly in um, Provence, which right. are, for me, a huge reference point um, for, I'm a big fan and living here. For dry rosé, for rosé in general, and you know, wine in general. Yeah. Okay, so so you, you had the property, um, then, so that decision to... Uh, make only rosé uh, how did that come about did, was that um you know is that off of this example that you found in Provence or were there it was just what you wanted to do I think for me more than any other style it just agreed with um, my ideas of the growing region and okay. then this site as well as the living here and the type of food right. um, that pairs very well, the type of versatility that comes in the style as well as then in the growing season how well suited it can be for earlier picking which means you have higher natural acids, lower sugars which all of these things are um, I see as a benefit. Yeah, I want to develop that a little bit more because mm-hmm. um you know, I think that folks out there have a hard time grasping 
um, why is it so hard to grow grapes uh, in, in Texas? And then why is the rosé production particularly well-suited? And it has to do with that earlier harvest, right? So, yeah, so tell us part. a little bit about, about that. And, uh, and when, when you find that the grapes are you know, left on the vine a little bit too long, that could be a real detriment, right? So, so that, Certainly. that's a complicated question as to when to pick and, and how long the growing season is, right? Definitely. Yeah. So for rosé, we're working with um, red grapes. Right. Um, yeah. We're. Um, it is, however, rather than picking what you would look for, um, picking to make a full red wine, right. you would pick it earlier, where um, those sugars haven't built from the ripening process um, quite to the same level that you would necessarily want for a red wine. Um, it also means that just like a you know looking at say a, a strawberry that's not fully ripened is right. still partly green it has that tartness to it so right. it's the higher natural acids, and for a rosé that's really ideal uh, because you want those things to as much as you can naturally be there in the fruit, um, so you don't have to do a lot of manipulating in the cellar. It also the varieties that can do that well have been fairly, you know, tested, tried and true in right. some quite warm regions that deal with some of the heat spikes that we definitely have in uh, in the Hill Country area. And so they can keep that a little bit better, that balance of the higher acids and uh, lower sugars at a nicer point for a harvest point. Right. So to me, that was already having um, a love for that style. It just kind of made sense that in this heat and then the types of foods that then you want to eat, as well as then the, the types of things that you want to drink that are more refreshing, right, living here yeah. and you know living in the, the warmer climate, they all kind of just came together to make more sense. So to me, it, it started as a rosé project and I, I'm pretty certain it'll continue uh, solely as a rosé project for now. Right, it's, right, right. It's the focus for sure. Yeah. So, and, 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 that, and it's that, that dedication to growing the grapes for rosé production. There are other ways to make rosé that, sure. uh, do, do you find other folks in Texas that are maybe not growing the grapes for rosé production, but the rosé is a byproduct of their red wine production? We call that saignet, mm-hmm. um, where they're, they're ripening the grapes, like you said, a little bit further mm-hmm. for the red wine production and then bleeding off some of the, the you know, the, the wine when it's just at the right color, 12 hours or so. Do you see folks in Texas doing that? And then do you see a clear distinction of quality? Um, um, I would just say, well, certainly people are doing that and there's nothing at all wrong with it. It's just a different style and a different right. preference. So what I prefer yeah. in a style in the direct press method, which is picking the fruit and taking it into the cellar and directly... Um, pressing the juice off from the skins, right. um, giving it that uh, generally really pale color as well because it doesn't get much contact, but also, um, again, picking that fruit just with that in mind um, rather than a red in mind. So I prefer the the kind of brightness that comes from that and a leaner quality, whereas some people do prefer a richer, rounder, kind of fuller right. uh, bodied rosé, which, again, is just a preference and style and things. Sure. Um, but you will have, with that process, if you're picking for a, a fuller red, generally speaking, you're going to have a little bit higher sugar levels, right. um, which would then convert to your alcohol levels. Higher alcohol, um, yeah. And then, again, generally you're going to have a little richer, fuller body um, with that. What that does do, though, for a producer on that level is it concentrates their red, 
Um, meaning that you're drawing some of that juice off immediately to then, so they can find a benefit on both sides if that's the style that they prefer as well as then have the benefit for the red. Um, for me personally, I just, I prefer the more direct press method. Right, right. Cool. So, so you planted the vineyard and then it was going to be how many years until you had fruit? Um, you know, you just, you made the decision to look at some vineyard sourcing that maybe was doing, you know, had this similar philosophy as you. And so for the past few years, how, how long has Dandy Rosé been around? Um, it's in its second vintage. Second so, vintage. Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. So 2014 was the first. And then we, uh, in 2014, uh, there was one barrel made. So <laughs> wow. to call it a first vintage is a little bit of a, almost exaggeration, but it was uh, 25 cases. So one barrel. And then the 2015 vintage, which we released on May 18th, um, grew to 108 cases. 108 cases. So, um, yeah, it's been so still, only, only two vintages very early on. We're talking, I mean, that's that's like, a, you know, from some of these larger wineries or wineries in California, I mean, that's just like <laughs> yeah. a, a just a drop. Like, they use that much to exactly. do analyses, you know, to do <laughs> yeah. laboratory Hopefully analysis. Hopefully not 100 cases <laughs> for analysis. But yes, yeah, their but, accountants uh, might not like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so, um, so then you started, you, uh, did you have any surprises when you started kind of bringing in these contracted fruit? I mean, uh, differing from your, your experiences in Portugal and in California, you know, was it, um, because you're at, you're get out there getting your hands dirty too, for the most part in making the wine, right? Was there any, um, were there any surprises? Did everything go just perfectly? Uh, well, well, no wait, production wait, wait. never goes perfectly, but okay. I would say again with that community of really great uh, resources, right. um, the access to really good quality fruit, um, right. the uh, winemakers at Lewis Wine really uh, helped me gain access to, which they have long-standing relationships with some of the really high-quality growers in the state. And then also right. we looked at where we could find the best quality fruit, also of the varieties that I have uh, planted at the vineyard. Right. Um, so we don't think it's so, going to be a big transition in flavor from this year to next year when you're going to have your own fruit. Yeah, Ooh, that's the right. assumption. Of course, there's always going to be, exactly, course, yeah. with the site itself and kind of learning what that's going to be and having its own characteristics. Right, right. But within the varieties, at least, it'll be within the same kind of uh, vein or some kind of you know connection yeah, to yeah. that. Very cool. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break. If you're just tuning in, we're here with Ray Wilson, who is owner and winemaker of Dandy Rosé. She also consults for uh, many restaurants and, and groovy wine spots all around Austin. Um, we're going to be back with her uh, after these short announcements, and we're going we're gonna to keep on talking about um, Dandy Rosé, where it's going, where the Texas industry is going, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Okay, we're back. This is Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P, Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM and K-O-O-P dot O-R-G. We've been talking for uh, the first uh, 24 minutes of the show um, with Ray Wilson, who's owner and winemaker of a project out in the Hill Country, uh, and her wine is called Dandy Rosé. This is the second year of its release. Uh, the quality is excellent. Uh, from I, I tasted it a few times over the past week, and uh, I'm really happy to have her in the studio live. Uh, we're broadcasting from Austin. Ray, so... Um, you know, we talked about kind of your background and and uh, how the the project kind of got got started. And I want to I want to talk about where it's where it's going and, and what are kind of some of your 
uh, goals and um, and it must be just an incredible thing for you to be part of the Austin wine community, uh, be on the front lines of you know a lot of restaurants. We're going to talk about your consulting in a in a in a little bit here, but then to you know as you say go to the source and and uh, start up a vineyard, um, put out a wine and. Uh, I was thinking when we were talking before in the lobby, you know, you nobody is going to tell you to take a different direction. It's your direction, right? And it's and it's and it's like your. It's almost the accumulation of. I don't want to be too grandiose here, but you know, (laughs) the accumulation of uh, uh, of what you've learned and studied, right? Yes, absolutely. I think um, I I I do. That was a bit grandiose. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love. I love kind of always challenging, you know, what, how I can kind of grow this uh, seeming love affair I have in, in the wine industry in general. And I'm always kind of looking at different ways to, uh, you know, things to involve myself in, which then looks at, you know, lots of the consulting and things like that. But the this project, I think where it's going, I mean, to me... I, I want it uh, right now. I very much, um, it's made in the Hill Country, um, and then about an hour west of Austin, and then right. it's really, it's brought all directly to the Austin market. So to me, although in time I will grow the production, um, right. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like or numbers, but it will grow. Right. Um, and I will... Well, about how much wine can you get off of your two, you know, your two acre? Uh, what, what do the numbers kind of say? With keeping the yields at a lower, uh, higher quality, quality um, right. we could probably, once it's in full uh, production, probably make a few hundred cases off okay. of it. Okay, all right. Um, and so there's probably there probably will be a single bottling single uh, site bottling off okay. of just that vineyard in the future. Okay. Um I most likely will continue to as well uh, seek out some of these really great growers who I've gotten excellent fruit from right. and um make uh, a wine from that as well. Right. Um both to address quantity but also in kind of showing the uniqueness of a specific site as well right. as then, you know, kind of varieties that are grown around the state that are doing re- very well. And, um, I will definitely, um, at some point we'll add a sparkling to the lineup, but it'll also be rosé. So there will be a still and a sparkling. Right. Okay. Um, and it's heart will always be in the Austin market. I will probably look at, you know, expanding to other places. If there's a, if there's a, desire and a demand that right. I can, uh, you know, kind of help build in, in, uh, the larger Texas market, but Austin will always be its, uh, home and yeah. heart. Because no, it's, I mean, is, and from us talking before the show, it seemed like, you know, the environmental and the sustainable factor, uh, is very, is very important for you. Right. I mean, yes. uh, you know, if you're shipping heavy cases of wine, hundreds and hundreds of miles, you do have, you know, that has its environmental impact. And in fact, in the wine industry, that's one of the greatest environmental impacts, right? Definitely. Yeah. No, I think that's, um, I do, I think, look at a more traditional European model with this. And I hope to, um, you know, within keeping a business that I can keep, you know, uh, running, I still really want to, as much as possible, keep it as a regional production. Right. And so, to me, banking something that's essentially in Austin's backyard, about an hour away um, from 
you know, a main source of fruit being there too. Um, I really do think that just like when people go to Europe and they're so charmed when they go um, and find, you know, specific uh, products in specific regions and you can only get right. it there. And right. so to me, I really want to see Dandy Rosé be something like that something that's like that. we can have associated with yeah. Austin. Right. And, you know, as it grows, maybe in time there might be a little bit that'll be in, you know, some other places in Texas. But you know that when right. you come to Austin, you'll be able to find it on restaurant lists and in wine bars. Right. And... You know, at the Austin Wine Merchant or wherever. Yeah. The um, the it, it's it's a um, you know it, it's such sometimes a novel novel uh, concept that we have to get reminded of when we go to Europe. Uh, you know, you go to the local co-op with your jug, exactly. and uh, and and fill it up, and and that and that can be very possible here. You, you were talking about some of the alternative. Um, uh, containers for wine and, and how that might be uh, down the line something that's important for you or possible. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, w what are the, you know, glass being very heavy and, and mm -hmm. not really re reusable? I mean, we can recycle it, but we can't really reuse it mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's super environmentally friendly. So, so, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the industry as a whole, especially as we get into much more of this kind of global market that we're all kind of looking at trying to compete in, I do think that it brings more attention to, say, in Europe, those um, more easily available regional models that really do, they're more sustainable on a fundamental level. And so I think looking at here and at this project, I do, I want to explore different types of packaging. I think that people are finally kind of coming around to seeing that uh, cutting out some of that packaging cost as well can keep a nicer price on wines, be it either in right. a stainless steel keg or um, possibly in like a single serving can. Right. Um, I think all of these things are, are really fun to play with. I think some of that is really though uh, doing the work of helping build some of that infrastructure because within the wine industry it's that part is very young right. no matter where you are whether you're you know on the west coast um, in the US or um, here in Texas so I think some of that kind of comes to being creative um, from the producer uh, side of things right. and really trying to figure out how we can help build some of those infrastructures uh, the infrastructure for the industry that can then support alternative packaging and yeah. so there will always be some in glass but I do want to explore that well and the Austin and it and the Austin market might be a little bit more uh, open to it and Definitely. accepting of it and so that kind of just feeds into that concept of, of what you're doing in general yes I, I, I want to I want to give folks out there paint a picture of what it's like to be uh, you know a winemaker I always see you at tastings here in in the Austin area how what does it look like for you when you go out and you visit a vineyard and uh, and meet folks? And what does it look like when you go and and you know go to the facility that you're making the wine in? Um, you know, are you constantly tasting? Are you um, what's the day to day? You know, and and how much day to day work is there? Uh, I guess after the wine is made, after it's harvested and pressed and fermented. Well, so. <clears throat> Um, luckily the, the cellar team, um, where it's made is really made this very much, um, uh, accessible, uh, right. for me to do this without living right there at right. the, uh, winery site. So we make a plan together and then we, you know, uh, talk about it as it's going and then there's ongoing tasting. So there right. really is an important part from any kind of production though, about tasting throughout the process right. and knowing 
um, how it's evolving because it's such a relatively short amount of time, although we keep it with a long and slow fermentation, very cool, um, because for a rosé, it keeps these nicer, kind of finer uh, aromatics and things like that. Um, but a lot of that, like, you know, day to day is just then communication with the seller team. Um, and then, um, being out there with anything larger and being there for tasting and bottling and blending and all of the things. So it's very much a partnership with them and it's a really important partnership. Um, and then as the, you know, as it grows and, you know, at some point we'll probably be able to look at our own facility and, and at that point it might be more of a full-time, um, you know, thing that I could really, do you um, want to move out there? Do you want to, do you want to, or I guess, um, you know, the commute's not too bad, but, um, I yeah. like the idea of splitting a time. I'm a little too <laughs> yeah. much of an urbanite, um, right, but I right. do really enjoy the uh, having some of both. It really is kind of a, it's you know quite the lovely thing to be able to spit some, split some time out yeah. there as well as um, continue the consulting in the city, which also continues um, my own palate education, which is an ongoing right. thing. I really want to talk about that because um, it's 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 a really interesting concept. Uh, everybody comes at winemaking or wine with their unique perspective. Um, do you feel like your your uh, history and your past has, you know, when you're tasting with other winemakers out there, do you feel like you come at it as at a different angle and at an angle where, um, you know, it's a good it's a it's a good dialogue and it's a good conversation and and it positions you very well. Um, yeah, I mean, because it's, it's, it's an interesting piece coming out winemaking from having such a broad knowledge of wine in general. Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, I think even just any of the experience in the cellar, um, from, you know, the places that I went and worked for, um, initially, I think, you know, there's no way once you experience that to kind of, uh, there's no way to go back to not having known that on right, then right. that level, right? right so right. it's it just changes the perspective so greatly from studying something from a book and tasting and all of that is still so much and you could spend five lifetimes just on that and people do and right. and you know that's uh, evident in the master sommeliers with the you know incredible depth of knowledge that that is and yet I think that you know like I said kind of completing that circle for me is something that once I was in the cellar and having like knowing what that smell and feel and um, just more visceral experience of it, I think to me had its own great appeal that there's no way to not take that with me when I go back to taste, right, right. whether in front of a, a winemaker who's showing me their wines or um, or just studying in general. Right. Um, and that's always ongoing. Um, yeah. So so I, and OK, so let's talk about your role as a consultant and what you know, um, what that process looks like and some of the places that you, um, that, that you consult for and you, uh, do their, their wine list for their restaurant menu. Um, what does that look like? So the consulting business wine for the people, it's really, um, it's a huge range, um, that I consult wine business. So that includes anything from producers and doing everything from, project managing and looking at, you know, their production uh, schedules and kind of helping them put together kind of strategies and styles and information on that side, which, you know, informed by the market side, as well as then sometimes it's restaurants and building a program for them and training their staff. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, doing some kind of advising uh, uh, with an importer and, you know, kind of the viability of certain 
types of wines coming to the market and kind of right. that competition. So there's really, you know, every day within that role, I think some days I'm standing at a bottling line, right, um, right. looking at that happening and kind of making sure things are going. And then the next day I might be, um, say, you know, working, um, with Thai Fresh um, as one of my restaurant clients and, you know, doing a staff training and looking at, um, you know, how we kind of bring attention to some of the really cool types of wines that, you know, we can pair with Thai food right, um, right. to then, you know, another day being where I'm um, at, you know, the Texas Wine Journal tasting and we're tasting through 50 different wines and uh, blindly and kind of assessing to then lots of uh, industry tastings in general. So sure. I'd say I average about a hundred wines a week that I taste, yeah. which very much as well, um, and probably even on a greater level, informs anything that is done and that I look at on the production side, Absolutely, whether my yeah. own or someone else's project. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big, big range. Can I just in in um, a little bit of the time that we have left? Uh, I want you to kind of lead lead the listeners out there through a little bit of that process of developing a restaurant menu because I've had a lot of folks here who uh, you know uh, on the show who who work for the restaurant um, but you were you do wine lists for for many restaurants and so how are they different I mean how is you know what are your thoughts in that and um, yeah, just give just give us that that process because I think it's interesting how the wine gets on the menu and into the glass of the consumer and you're integral, you know, from several stages, you know, deeper than than that line. Sure. Um well, it's always driven by the food. So whatever is being done and uh, established in the kitchen is always the first and foremost um thing to then base um, where, what direction we go with the wine. And then, you know, the concept being more casual or more finer dining or, um, you know, how large of a list to then kind of recommend, those all kind of come from then seeing the project as a whole and seeing what is, what's uh, workable within that concept. Right, right. Um, and so that really is always, always going to be driven by the, uh, by the kitchen's concept and by the food that's then needing to be paired, but also very much, um, you know, side by side, um, food. So food do you work food. with most of the chefs? I mean, how, 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 you know, obviously you need to know the menu, uh, and then you pair the wine menu to the food. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, um, and you, you probably say every once in a while, Hey, this wine is too good. Uh, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily go with the food, but, you know, I need to feature it or, you know, some, sure. something that you're passionate about. There are always kind of, you know, uh, ways to make it work right, you know, right, with right, numbers right. and things that are just the practical parts. But I would say I'd say maybe one of the best examples might be what I already mentioned with, say, Thai Fresh, where, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of looking at the food, letting that drive the styles, because that's um, just very, very, um, you know, the strongest informer of how, um, what to, how to build that list. Right. And then looking at, then within the training of the staff, it not only being about, this is why these things are chosen. They're not, it's not about these being my favorite wines. Right, these right. are about, this is what's best and most complementing uh, the food, as cool. well as then in a price range and things that also make sense with the overall concept. But I think, right. The other part is then informing and educating them on how to um, talk to customers about it, um, not just presenting, but also when a customer comes in and says, I really love, you know, these 
really big oaky Napa Cabernets. Why don't you have any on your list? Letting them know that it's not like, oh no, we don't have that. It's here's, here's why. And here are some recommendations that, you know, kind of in that direction, because something like a really heavy oaky Cabernet, um, you know, generally is not something that's going to be a great complimenter. It would overwhelm most of the menu on say a Thai uh, menu. And so you look at those types of things, but a lot of that just turns into um, language and teaching uh, staff the language around kind of how that comes about but yeah it's about working with the chefs as the if it's a new concept kind of as that comes along and then um really lots and lots of staff education very cool um we're running short on time so i want to uh i just want to kind of wrap up uh the dandy rosé give us the website for folks who want more information uh on this year's release yes it's dandypink.com all right and yeah lots of information there anything you'd like to know as well as contact information if you need more very cool very cool and tell us about this you're you're kind of involved um with this rosé tasting that is going to be uh going on part of a a group called the Texas Wine Revolution, uh, and they're going to be doing tastings with all Texas-grown fruit th- uh, throughout the year, right? Tell us, tell us your role and what and what the whole concept is there. Yes, it's being driven um, by a group of producers who are really wanting to bring a lot of focus and. Uh, kind of market focus into producers here in Texas who are working with all uh, Texas fruit. And so they're really just wanting to highlight how unique these are and um, really bring people together to um, just kind of show off these wines. And so uh, the showcase um, for this first wine festival under Texas Wine Revolution, it's being driven a lot by um, a good friend, Chris Brundrett, who's one of the winemakers at uh, William Chris Vineyards. And so it's being held there for this initial one. And it's all rosés, which I think as a category in Texas right now is a really strong one. Um, And yeah, all the examples at this festival will be 100% um, Texas-grown fruit, which is, yeah, really fun, very very unique. And, and, you know, like we were talking about, rosé from Texas is is really a super promising category um we're all we're gonna give uh, daniel Collada is uh um he is uh the director of the texas wine journal and uh, they're actually tasting 24 rosés at this very moment we're gonna give him a call um i hope that you'll stick with us will you stick with us uh, and, and talk with daniel yes uh, we're gonna we're gonna give him a call to see how that is shaping up uh 24 texas rosés being judged right now um at that uh, uh vine vault which is on on Congress and Fifth. So um, we're going to play a little bit of music, get him, uh, Daniel, queued up, and um, and stick with us. This is, if you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down. It's Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P, Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and K-O-O-P.org. We've been talking with Ray Wilson, who is owner and winemaker of Dandy Rosé. Um, we're going to hear a, a little music, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Okay, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, that was John Fahey. I hope you enjoyed that that uh, music here. Um, and uh, this is very exciting that I can bring in. Uh, so I've got Ray Wilson here live in the studio, and we've got uh, Daniel Collada on the phone, uh, who is owner of the Texas Wine Journal. Daniel, you there? You're on the air. I am. Hey, hey, Ray. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Hey, it's Daniel. great. This is this is super fun. So tell us what's going on at Vine Vault. We've, you've got... Um, You've got uh, several panelists who are judging Texas wine, right? 
You got it. So, uh, so far we're nine, eight judges in, um, tasting dry rosé. And Ray, I got to tell you, your, your wine is, is definitely a standout. So thank you for all that you're doing for the Texas wine industry. Thanks for that. Yeah, right on. So, um, so give us the breakdown. You've got, you've got 24 wines there. You've got eight judges. Um, so, and then you throw in some world wines too, right? We do. We always got to keep, keep the judges honest and keep the panel uh, interesting in terms of the results go. So the, the breakdown is always Texas in terms of its appellation, which means a minimum of 75% Texas fruit in each Texas bottle. Uh, and then we throw in uh, world wines as either a benchmark or a calibration. That way, when we release the results, there's something to, to, to look at that's right. already been compared or judged by another uh, rating authority. Right, right, right. So for this category of rosé, what, what did you throw in? What were the, kind of the ringers? Uh, we, so we threw in a South African Shiraz blend, uh, Shiraz Petit Shiraz Carignan Mouved blend. Uh, we also threw in a Bandol, which is uh, Mouved. Uh, okay. And then we also threw in... Uh, let's see, what was that? The Tavel. Uh, Tavel. Yeah. Tavel. Yeah, Grenache Strabland. So classics versus someone, uh, two classics with a new world against Texas. Right, right, right. And and we were kind of talking before about with Ray about um, you know some of those Provence regions, uh, both uh, well specifically Bandol being in uh, in Provence and one of the most acclaimed rosé areas, and then Tavel being uh, at the you know in the Rhone Valley and exclusively yeah. rosé, right? Exactly. Oh. I mean, those are just classic examples of what rosé should be, and and you know being in Texas wine. We're an emerging region, so we haven't yet defined what's classic for us. So to be able to compare or at least contrast to other classic examples is very important. Right. What's exciting is to see those same varietals, Mouved, Grenache, Senso, Syrah, Rosé, blends that that can compete, and they can compete not only in terms of quality, but also price, and and that's that's very exciting. Yeah. So really so very yeah. So, so it, what are the judges kind of uh, you know what are they are they giving any hints away? I mean, you don't see the results. They and and the judges do fill out a full uh, scorecard that then you pass on to the producers so that the industry can keep on getting better. Um, what are what are they what are they saying? Well, you know, <laughs> there's I think every New World region fights fights the same thing. This this difference between a, a Saunier rosé versus a, fr- a, fr- uh, a fresh pressed rosé right. or straight pressed rosé, kind of that candied fruit and how that balances out with acid and tannin versus a rosé that was harvested to make rosé where you have natural acidity and, and kind of that more fresh, leaner, uh, more mineral-driven style of rosé. You know, so that's very much a, a difference between the wines that we're showing today. But it's, it, it comes down to balance, you know, and when you taste rosé, you expect really fresh, bright acidity, um, some, obviously some body and some flavor, but how does, that, how does your structure balance out your overall flavor? And that's, that's the question. I think that's what separates a great rosé from a good rosé or an average rosé is your overall balance, your overall freshness, and your overall acidity. Yeah, Ray, can I ask you about that? Um, just as far as, you know, those kind of innate characteristics of rosé that you look for, I mean, that balance of body, acidity, um, texture, and flavor, I mean, what, what is it? Do you sometimes taste some things and be like, oh, you know, I, I wish we had more texture, more acidity, et cetera? 
Definitely. And that kind of comes back to my preference for that direct press method, mostly because, again, when you're looking at the fruit in the vineyard and what you're looking for, that balance um, with rosé in mind, which is why it's uh, kind of fun to have like a solely rosé project because then I'm not thinking about the other red that I could make. But um, but the difference in that direct press or the, you know, just the fruit, um, the sugar levels, the natural acids there. and that expression, and again, some of it turns to just preference, but some of it really is just a, um, you can have a much fuller, richer um, style, right. um, or, you know, the lighter, leaner style, kind of like what Daniel's saying. But that the difference of the fruit in the vineyard is certainly where you, where that first choice is being yeah. made that then informs right. Then right. the style. So, Daniel, you're, you've, you've started, uh, oh, did you have something to say there? Yeah, I was going to say, that one of the other things about rosé is you can't judge it by its color. <laughs> right. Uh, because you can have brilliant rosés that don't look like they will be brilliant or amazing in the glass, and then when you taste them and smell them, they they completely are perceived as a different style of wine. And conversely, you can have a, you can have a full-fleshed rosé that, on its own, looks great in the glass, and then just falls short in the palate. So color, color can be a defining marker for overall quality. Right, right, uh, Daniel. I'd like to ask you just about some of the the grape varieties because this is uh, you're judging rosé uh, as a full category, but uh, you've got I know a lot of rosés there that are Grenache dominant, some Syrah dominant, and then there, there's other varieties too. Just like what Ray was saying is you can make you can make rosé out of any red grape essentially. What do you have at the tasting at the journal tasting today, and um, what do you see also as um, you know, are there any other prospective grapes that could do really good rosé? Uh, that's, t- that's a good question and a tough question at the same time. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing more this year than we did last year when we tasted the same category is more of that French Mediterranean rival. So your Grenache, your Mouvet, your Syrah, your Cinsos. Um, but we also see Tempranillo as a rosé, Sangiovese as a rosé. And I-, I think one of the styles of rosé that... Um, is a little bit difficult to judge, even as Texas wine or not a Texas wines are rosés that are made by adding a certain percentage of a red wine to a base of white wine. Okay. Um, those styles of rosés, it's hard to judge from a typicity point of view, meaning you don't really know what varietal you're tasting. So it's more of a just, we made a rosé out of a blend, um, which is fine. You can make really quaffable wines that way, but at the same time, Right. You know, we're judging wines based off of their their correctness for their style to some extent, and it's hard to know what's correct when you have a, uh, I guess, a kitchen sink style blend that is the rosé. Right, right, right. Interesting, interesting. So we're also seeing, um, you're, we're, we're, you, you mentioned Tempranillos too. Is that a, uh, a growing category? I mean, I think a lot of folks are really looking at Tempranillo as being one of the more prospective red grapes for dry red wine. Uh, are, are you seeing a growing segment of Tempranillo rosé? To to be honest, I I don't know. I I mean, uh, the the Tempranillo rosés that I expect to be submitted into the Journal for Evaluation are the same ones each year. Uh, Personally, I think if you compare Tempranillo rosés from Texas versus uh, Tempranillo rosés from Spain, like the Muga, it's very classic in that sense that you get some savory, kind of darker-style cherry-baked red fruit. Um, But it's, it's... from what I can tell, it's not yet growing. It should grow because you can produce some really excellent rosés from Tempranillo. Right, right. 
Yeah, in fact, um, there, I think that you have a, a few really, uh, really excellent ones there at the tasting. Uh, tell, can you tell folks out there how to get more information on the, the journal and, and see the scorecard that folks are using at this very moment to, to judge Texas rosés? Sure. So our, our website is texaswinejournal.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram and on YouTube. Um, Texas Wine Journal, if you Google it, you can find us. Great. Um, the, the, the evaluation form that we use is really kind of our pride and joy. We've spent a year developing that form. Um, it it's really addresses this idea of being objective. Uh, in our world, objectivity is, is, is a something that you can quantify so that it's pointed, but while at the same time it allows for subjective input, meaning right. what are you tasting, how does it come off, what does it look like, what does it smell like, what's it taste like. Um, so the form itself is on the website. Essentially it's on uh, one of the pages that's called Submit Wines or Tasting Schedule, and you can find the form there. Um, or you can always email one of the judges or myself to get the form. It's We want to make right. it accessible because it, it is useful whether you are a member of the panel or a consumer looking to figure out a, a solid form to evaluate wines from, or you, even a professional looking to evaluate wines. Right, sure. And then you you'll you publish the results of this um, with some statistical analysis, right? Uh, 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 the, uh, those are published on the website as well, and um, can folk, folks can see those, those and, and then you also uh, pass on those um, objective and subjective comments to the producers. Yeah, I mean, our value is, is aligned with the producers, so we want to make sure producers have very transparent feedback on the wines they submit for evaluation. Uh, from there, because we have a minimum quorum of judges, we want to make sure that the data we're producing is, is not only objective but reaches consensus. And so once we establish kind of the methodology from there, we can break down the data uh, into really, at this point, we're, we're tracking 10 different uh, parameters for each category, ranging from what is the vintage like, what is the potential alcohol or the uh, the al- actual alcohol for the top-rated wines, what is the appellations, what are the vintages, uh, the vineyards, the styles, the varietals. Um, so we're able to track 10 different parameters from each category, and that's published in a category report. So every category we taste is is broken down statistically in a, in a report along with its rating um, and, and tasting notes for at least the top three wines. Very cool. Um, we've only got about uh, a minute and a half. Can you tell us uh, some of the events so that the Texas Wine Journal is actually now uh, becoming a little bit more public, right? What yeah. what What is going on with the events that you're doing and um, and, and folks can actually be a part of, of uh, that kind of excitement of tasting Texas wines versus uh, wines from around the world, right? Yeah, this is this is kind of the evolution of the of the organization. Um, first and foremost, we we have to strive to add value for every producer submission, and value comes not only in our credible and transparent feedback, but also on the consumer side. How does a consumer get to uh, experience what we're talking about, and right. either in a tasting or being able to access those wines for sale, or whatever it may be. Um, so for us, we, we started a, an event series with, in partnership with Whole Foods and, and Culture Map that basically is a three-day roadshow, three cities, three days, three events that travels uh, in, through Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And, and, it, and it's kind of a modified Texas versus the world. If, if, if your listeners have experienced Texas versus the world in the past. Right on this show, yeah. Um, it, it's kind of that version, uh, 
with a lot more discussion and history and production and information about the varietals and the region in which wine is being produced. So we right. do it once a quarter. It's the third month in each quarter, Austin, Houston, Dallas, and tickets are available. All the money that's raised goes to support the nonprofit mission, which is to create uh, basically transparent, objective, incredible cool. evaluations and ratings for Texas wine. So it's just a really great way to build community, highlight our top-rated wines, add value for producers, and, and get the consumer involved because through right their voice and through their purchasing habits, we're able to move this industry forward with, with really great mind, uh, great wine at mind. Daniel, thank you so much. we got to run. Uh, stay All tuned right. for Remix. Daniel, thank you so much for talking with us. Ray Wilson, uh, thank you so much for being here in the studio telling us about Dandy Rosé. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Mark Rayshop. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, 91.7. Stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix. We ha- have a wonderful uh, week, folks, and we'll, we'll be back next week still talking about wine.